2: Hello everyone, welcome to Warfare. I'm your host James Rogers and in 2022 we're going to be bringing you cutting-edge military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, I bring you brand new episodes and coming up soon we have Australian veterans from the Second World War talking to us in time for Australia Day, sneak peeks behind the scenes of brand new blockbuster Netflix films like Munich The Edge of War and first-person testimony from Holocaust Survivors like Agnes Grunwald Spear. So, make sure you subscribe, and if you're enjoying the podcast, then drop us a five-star review wherever you listen, on Apple Podcasts, and also now on Spotify, where a new addition for the new year is that you can pop over there, and with one click, give us a five-star review as well. Now, as regular listeners will know, once a week I take a deep dive into the History Hit archives and I pull out an episode that I think deserves some attention. This one is with the fantastic veteran broadcaster Peter Snow, and it's about when the British burnt down the US capital. It was in... 1814, when a British expeditionary force landed in Maryland, marched on Washington, brushed aside the American army, and stormed into the US Capitol. The British looted and burned the Capitol building and then moved on to the White House. They ate President Madison's dinner and then torched the White House. Even members of the British forces at the time said it was barbaric. So now, over 200 years later, we're joined by Peter Snow to take us through this amazing history and ever so relevant than the storming of the Capitol last year. Enjoy.
3: Hi, Dad. How are you doing? Fine, Dan. Uh, Sort of shielding, but pretty good. How quickly did your thoughts go to the storming of Washington when you were watching Cable news non-stop a couple of nights ago.
4: I cast myself back immediately to the minds of those extraordinary Brits who crossed the Atlantic to bash up the Americans because they didn't like them very much. And uh, they didn't like American democracy the way it was running. And uh, so uh, we have extraordinary parallels here.
3: The War of 1812 is one that people often forget about. Just quickly, what was the situation in terms of the, the, sort of the balance of power, that how the war had been going by the time the Brits headed towards the Potomac?
4: Britain was an enormous empire with a great navy running the seas as if they owned the whole lot, and the Americans found this extremely tiresome. Uh, Britain was in- interfering with American trade, and the Americans declared war on Britain. The Americans, 30 years into independence, declared war on Britain, their former colonial rulers, and they said to hell with these Brits. Let's get them out of the sea, Uh, certainly out of American seas. Um, The Brits responded by, obviously, fighting the Americans and finding it very taskable because the Brits were fighting Napoleon at the time. It was the Napoleonic War. And the Americans tried to invade Canada without success, so the war roared and stormed. And um, the Brits decided in 1814, after two years of this war of 1812, that they were going to go and give the Americans a good lesson. And that's why they went to Washington.
3: Was it always designed as a sort of raid on the enemy capital? Or was this an attempt at conquest? What was the British plan?
4: The British Parliament told the uh, Commander-in-Chief, a chap called Alexander Cochrane, Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane, they said, go and give the Americans a good drubbing. We're fighting Napoleon. Let's stop them fighting us at, at sea and stop them invading Canada. It's extremely tiresome. Go and give them a good drubbing. We're fighting the French, not the Americans. And so Cochrane went off with his navy, and there was one Dan key man in the British fleet, Admiral George Coburn, rear Admiral George Coburn, one rank down from Alexander Cochrane. And Coburn said, as the ships were piling across the Atlantic, Coburn said, I think the best thing to do is to go and hit the heart of American democracy, Washington, the capital of the United States. And so the Brits said, oh, my goodness, you think that's wise? <laughs> and Admiral Cochrane, the, the boss man, said, mm, we'll think about that. Anyway, they arrived in, um, in, in the Chesapeake Bay area, about 50 miles south of Washington. They anchored their ships and George Coburn said, right, come on, let's go to Washington and sack the place. Well, one or two Brits, rather like one or two, even Republicans, thought this might be today, thought this might be a little bit over the top. But nevertheless, George Coburn clearly had the bit between his teeth. He was a very inspiring man, wonderful chap. Uh, The Brits all admired him very much. And they started heading for Washington.
3: So they had a lot of latitude as they crossed the Atlantic. They had a huge amount of latitude, could they? They could have bought, sort of blockaded New York or Boston, but they just, they just it was them that chose to go to the Virginia, Maryland area, was it? Yes, I mean, that, that was the point. They could have gone. They could have gone and tried to rescue the poor Canadians who were having a terrible time
4: fighting off the Americans, quite successfully, actually. And they could have gone down to New Orleans and cut off the Americans from the South and West. But they decided, um, and it was mainly George Coburn's idea, <laughs> to go straight for the American capital. And so they went, to Chesapeake Bay, Chesapeake Bay, which which really is just outside Washington, the Potomac River runs into Chesapeake Bay.
3: And so, this is obviously a a great example of British amphibious capability. That they they need warships to carry troops there, they need to land the troops. Isn't it? Chesapeake Bay is no easy place to to do pilotage, isn't it, uh, the The water is occasionally extremely shallow. It was a most extraordinary
4: operation, not unlike the one you wrote so well about in Quebec. It was the most uh, 50 years, fifty or so years earlier. It was it was a very, very bold operation. They had to go into the Chesapeake Bay. They then had to find another little river called the Patuxent River, which creeps up quite near to Washington, not as big as the Potomac, a smaller river with lots of shallows, which creeps up, quite near to Washington. It goes to a place called Nottingham, (laughs) unbelievably. They anchored their ships in the Patuxent River, uh, and then they went in small boats against the stream, which is coming down towards them. They rowed in small boats 4,000 troops down. 4,000 of these British troops, heavily laden with uh, 60 rounds of musket ball ammunition, with uh, supplies for two or three days, blankets, they rowed their way up the river, and they got off the little rowing boats in a little town which is called Benedict. Um, a small town still there today. It looks just the same. It's a very small, you know, unaf- unaffecting looking place. I mean, very, very, very modest little village. And they got off there and they rested for a while. And then they started marching up 40 miles up uh, the land in Maryland today. and called Maryland, State of Maryland, up towards Washington.
3: Tell me, Dad, what about because the, the, the Americans in the War of 1812 had some had some, um, un- unpleasantly, from a British point of view, unpleasantly effective heavy frigates, didn't they? W- was there no attempt to interdict this amphibious force at sea before they, before they got near the nation's capital?
4: None. The, the, the Brits arrived. It was extraordinary. The American... Defence Department was incredibly badly run by a man called Armstrong, and the Commander-in-Chief was a man called Brigadier Winder, and they were incredibly badly run. The President himself was no great war leader. He was a chap called Madison, a wonderful man, who was a great statesman, a great thinker, a great great drafter of the American Constitution, James Madison, but he um, must have not expected the British to turn up at the, actually at the centre of of American power, but no, there was no attempt to stop the Brits arriving. There were one or two attempts to hit the British once they arrived. There was a team of little barges run by a wonderful chap called Joshua Barney, an American naval officer. But uh, there was nothing they could do with a huge British fleet, some 40 ships, really uh, huge ships like the Tonnant, which had fought at Trafalgar. I mean, it was it was terribly unlikely that the Americans would have been able to stop this fleet arriving. It was a great surprise for the Americans. It all happened terribly quickly. It was the 17th of August,
3: 1814, uh, and by the 24th of August, the British army had marched to Washington. So they're marching you take, They're marching up this peninsula. Tell me what happens after they leave Benedict. And, and uh, when do they first run into meaningful opposition then?
4: Well, <laughs> not really, till they got within... A few miles of Washington. They marched up the peninsula. This was the occasion when George Coburn really had to drive them forward. Cochrane, roughly when they were halfway up the peninsula, Cochran said, Look, I think you've done enough. Go back to the ships. This is the admiral who was in the overall admiral, the task force commander, Alexander Cochrane. He said, Look, I think you've turned back, chaps. We've done your stuff. You've frightened the Americans. You've given them a drubbing. Let's just go home. George Coburn said, No way are we going to go home. Let's just ignore what the Admiral says. George Coburn was leading the force forward in, in company with a very fine British general called Major General Robert Ross, who was the army commander. You may well ask what George Coburn, the naval commander, was doing with the army, but there he was. He was a tremendous driver. He was absolutely determined to go and do what he could to the Americans in Washington. He wanted to go and give them a good raid, a good, a good drumming, as they as they all called it. And uh, so Coburn drove them forward. They went up. They marched in four days. They went about 50 miles, 45 miles, up to the river that goes east of the Potomac and the east side of Washington. They crossed the river, and there, in front of them, was the American army, drawn up in a great, great panic and great haste by the very incompetent commander General Winder. He drew them up, Dan, at the place called Bladensburg. He drew them up just about five miles northeast of Washington. Uh, he drew them up in three lines, and oddly, he drew them up in three lines that were a long way from each other, so that they couldn't support each other. Don't forget, in those days, they had muskets that fired out really very really accurately, only about 100 meters. So you, you needed to have all your forces very close together. But he put them all very far apart. And so the battle started. 24th of August, the battle started, and it was a catastrophe for the Americans.
3: I should ask: Are these American? Are they are they regulars? Are they militia, national guards? of you know, part-time soldiers. What, what kind? Of, what's the quality of these troops that are facing these British veterans of the Napoleonic Wars?
4: Yes, I mean you make the point very well. That is the point about it, Dan. That the Brits had these four regiments of foot, who'd been right through the Napoleonic Wars. They were professional grizzled soldiers who they'd had all the experience they needed to fight any foe anywhere in the world. The Americans hadn't fought a war for 30 or 40 years since the American War of Independence against the Brits uh, in the 70s and 80s. And so the Americans were desperately unprepared. They were also desperately untrained. They had mainly volunteers. They had quite a few volunteers, but they also had people drafted. And so the American soldiers were poorly trained on the whole. There were one or two regiments of marines who were very well trained, but they were, they, on the whole they were poorly trained. Uh, they were very enthusiastic. They were determined to defend their country, no question about that. But they didn't really have the experience to face up to these four regiments, some 4,000 men, British, experienced veteran soldiers, who just went straight through them at the Battle of Bladensburg.
3: How did the battle play out? Was it a classic... Uh, infantry engagement, like you got on the continent uh, in Europe Europe at that time? How did the British route the Americans? Well, the
4: difference was that the Americans were drawn up in three lines. Uh, instead of putting them, as, as they did in the, in the Continental Wars, uh, instead of putting them all in one great long line with maybe two or three deep, facing the advancing foe, the Americans put them in three lines, one line behind the other, about uh, half a mile apart, so they couldn't really support each other, and the Brits just advanced in that way that the British did in those days, step by step, all sticking shoulder by shoulder, um, all looking at each other and, and, and taking strength from each other's uh, determined faces, and they just marched forward. the Americans saw the Brits advancing, and one line after another simply collapsed and ran. It was an embarrassing walkover for the for the Brits, and so there was just for a moment at the very end of the battle a moment where the British were losing quite a few men, um, and the Americans were fighting bravely, but they folded in the end and they ran.
3: The third line, particularly, you can you can imagine them exchanging volleys of musketry at, at very close range, can you?
4: Volleys of musketry at very close range. But the what really, I think, frightened the Americans was the discipline and the determination of the Brits just to walk straight at a, a, a musket fire coming straight at them. And they, they just weren't prepared to fight the British hand to hand and to have the... Have the, the the final clash that you have to have in an infantry battle in the in those days uh, with with baylins drawn and so uh, they ran for it,
3: and that left the nation's capital
4: effectively undefended. The nation's capital was then entirely undefended. We now got the evening of the 24th of August, 1814. The Americans have run for it uh, off the battle of uh, the battlefield of Bladensburg, and the British have five miles to walk down to march down to Washington, which was a very small village at those time, eh? about 8,000 people living there. It was a, a, a very small place. But there were two grand buildings, <laughs> really grand buildings. One was the Capitol, not quite the same as it is today, but the same, the same walls. And the other was the White House, which was almost exactly the same buildings we have today. And these two beautiful buildings were standing there in the middle of uh, almost nothing. It was all marsh and, and, and very open country. And there were lots of wood, wooden houses. There were lots of other houses. But uh, it, it, was, it was a village uh, with these two great buildings. And so the British marched down there and they saw it sitting there in front of them. And they thought, right, what are we going to do? Coburn had absolutely clear idea what they were going to do. <laughs> they were going to go down and they were going to burn the Capitol, and they were going to burn the White House and they were going to burn the State Department and one or two other buildings as well that they, they found in their track. And so they arrived around about uh, 7 p.m. They arrived at the Capitol, and um, I've I got a wonderful quote for you from uh, George Coburn, who uh, said, Right, chaps, let's, uh, let's attack this place. We're going to go and burn it to the ground. He dashed on the doors of the building. There was nobody trying to guard the building. In they went. He went to the Speaker's chair and he said, uh, he shouted out to his troops, he said, shall this harbour of Yankee democracy be burned? All for it will say aye. There was a great loud shout of assent from all the British troops uh, and Coburn in the lead, very much in the lead, then burnt the place down. The British troops burnt the place down. And it was, there's a wonderful picture of it, 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 which it stood there. Its walls were still standing, which you can see it completely burnt out. Uh, and terrifyingly as well, they burnt out the Library of Congress, some marvellous old books in Congress. They burnt out, uh, they burnt the Library of Congress, they burnt the books. Coburn himself um, wandered into the office. used by the president, Madison uh, in Congress, helped himself to one memento. It was a slim book beautifully bound with the words the President of the United States stamped in gilt on the cover. And it was President Madison's personal copy of the government's receipts and payments for the year. And he walked off and took it home. It was a pretty barbaric thing to do in this cradle of democracy. There were some Brits who were so appalled at what they saw being done that they actually said so at the time. Not quite the George Coburn who would, of course, have wrapped them over the knuckles. But... Uh, one or two others uh, who were equally appalled by what they saw happening in in the Capitol. Sam Whitbread, a British MP, heard about this when the news reached home, and he said Britain has done what even the Goths failed to do at Rome. I mean, he was stunned by what the Brits had done to what he saw as the cradle of American democracy. Huge echoes of what we see happening, what we saw happening last week in the American Congress in the same building. Uh, it was an extraordinary parallel. One of the soldiers who was with Ross and Coburn, it was a chap called Harry Smith, a very fine British officer called Captain Harry Smith, who fought his way right through the peninsula. He thought this was quite barbaric. He said, You know, what we did in Washington was barbaric. So you have this extraordinary parallel with uh, American Republican Republicans who are so appalled at what their president has done in in encouraging people to go and raid the Capitol that they say that he was doing something that was an affront to American democracy. And so you have these Brits, even these Brits, the enemy of the Americans, saying the same sort of thing that some Republicans felt they had to say about what Trump was doing. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary parallel. Anyway, the, the, the Capitol was burnt, The Brits then, with Coburn cheering them on, went to the White House. They found the door open. They went in and they found that Madison and his wife had left, of course. The White House was empty. Dolly Madison, who was the very brave Wife, a very feisty wife of of James Madison. James Madison, a rather retiring man, a great thinker, a great uh, a great great father of the American Constitution, had had left with his wife. But the wife said to James Madison, "I'm going to make sure that we um, take one or two vital things out of the White House before I go." And uh, she was very brave. She stayed on. She knew the British were there. She knew the Battle of Bladensburg was going on. But she decided to take off the wall, a very fine painting of George Washington, which uh, was sitting on the wall. She took it off the wall and she she cleared off her personal belongings and bunch well of other things that they were they thought were very precious about the White House. Uh, and they took them across the Potomac into Virginia. Um, anyway, when they left, they prepared supper. Dinner for all the Americans. They confidently expected that the Battle of Bladensburg would be won by the Americans, and so they prepared dinner for all their generals and all their staff. Um, and it was sitting on the table. It was the the the, the, the meat was turning in the spits. The wine was on the side table. It was all waiting. The table was laid. Uh, and in they walked. And Madison took one look around, and He said, my goodness, this is marvellous. Let's give a toast to James Madison for giving us a nice supper. He raised his glass and said, here's to James Madison, an American democracy. And um, the, the, everybody then sat down and they tucked into this marvellous meal. And um, they um, enjoyed it. They had a drink or two from Madison's wine. Uh, and then they. George um, Coburn said, right, chairs on the table. Let's burn the place down. And the British then uh, set light to the White House. It burned. And again, the walls remain standing, but the the thing was completely burnt out. The, the the walls, the wooden walls, the the wooden furniture, everything was absolutely destroyed. And and there's a fine picture again of the White House, which shows it completely burnt out. And even today, you can see on the doors of the White House, one or two places, you can see the black burn marks that they've left. I suppose the Americans have left them left them there. They haven't whitewashed over them. They've left as burn marks on the White House to to be a a sign that, uh, you know, this is what happened in 1814, don't let that ever happen again. And um, so that was the White House and the British then pulled back.
2: What caused the anarchy?
0: How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now?
2: Who won the Hundred Years' War?
0: Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk?
2: How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park?
0: And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman.
2: And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds.
0: We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today.
2: Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
3: Damage was stopped, staunch, wasn't it, by a terrible storm, a downpour. I remember reading your book. It's that sound, it seemed quite fortuitous.
4: The Americans were very, in a sense, very lucky because there was a huge rainstorm which uh, showered the Capitol, Washington, on the night of the 24th of August 1814, and that possibly um, stopped the whole White House burning to the ground, uh, and, and the Capitol too. And the two buildings were left with their walls still there, but completely burnt out. The the windows completely burnt out and and, and destroyed, uh, and black marks everywhere on the two buildings, uh, which which still remain today.
3: And after that, what, the Brits just retired, did they? They got back on their ships and went away?
4: Uh, Yes, the Brits then, um, Robert Ross, the general commanding, who was a very brave man and, and, and was very, very enthusiastic. George Coburn was leading them on and pushing them and in, inspiring them. Uh, but Robert Ross didn't disagree with Coburn. He was a bit hesitant initially, but uh, like Cochrane, the overall commander. But they, all three of them uh, were thrilled with what happened in Washington. They thought they'd done the right thing. They thought they'd given the Americans a good blasting. Except, as I mentioned to you, one or two, one or two Brits who felt that they had done the wrong thing and that they'd done something barbaric to american democracy but on the whole the feeling was that they'd done the right thing and then they pulled out they went very quickly back to the ships james madison and his wife were running around in virginia uh, hoping to escape the brits there was no need for them to run around because or to take refuge because the brits very quickly said, right, we've we've done enough, let's go. Only 4,000 soldiers, don't forget. And the Americans had up to, goodness knows, hundreds of thousands of soldiers available if they wanted them. The trouble with the Americans was they took time to get their their army together, and they were very much surprised by the speed of the British arrival in Washington. So they couldn't do much about it. Off went the Brits, down the river, and then they thought, what do we do next? And what they did next was, again,
3: an extraordinary part of the story. That's when the siege of Baltimore comes in, the Star-Spangled Banner, isn't it? <laughs> there were some Brits who thought,
4: right, I think we've done
3: enough here. We've given the
4: Americans quite a shock. We've destroyed the Capitol, We've destroyed the White House. Um, let's go home. Well, let's go down and start bashing up New Orleans or something. But Coburn, again, <laughs> said, no, come on, chaps. Let's go to Baltimore, an even bigger city than Washington. I mean, Baltimore was a huge place. Baltimore was a centre of American industry and naval production, ship production. And it was a, it was a, a very fine city. And um, if they could knock that down as well, that would be a tremendous success. So uh, with Coburn very much cheerleading and Cochrane, all the others very much uh, agreeing with him. Robert Ross led the army up, the Navy and the army up to uh, Baltimore, about 20 miles north of Washington. And um, they uh, landed the troops on the um, peninsula that runs east of Baltimore. And um, they went it's North Point Peninsula, it's called. And they landed there, and then they started marching up towards Baltimore. Now, the problem with Baltimore was that there was a... In order to to be sure that they would be safe uh, attacking Baltimore itself, they had to destroy a fort at the entrance to Baltimore Harbour called Fort McHenry. Fort McHenry, a fine fort right at the end of the Baltimore Harbour, and they had to shell it. They had to fire rockets and flares and mortar and, and, and bombs and things at this fort in order to, to suppress it so that they could feel safe about going into Baltimore itself. And also the Navy could then pass through the mouth into Baltimore Harbour uh, and also help to, to, um, to bombard Baltimore City. So up they went. They, they, they got off the ships. They, 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 they started marching towards Baltimore. The, the Navy came up and started shedding this great fort, Fort McHenry. And they arrived at a little stream halfway up the North Point Peninsula, and they had a battle with the Americans. And just before that battle, a terrible thing happened. Robert Ross, the commander of the British force, was shot dead. So Robert Ross, this very brave northern Irishman who had, who had led the army very successfully at the Battle of Bladensburg... Uh, and, and defeated the Americans in Washington, was shot dead. So Robert Ross was dead, and Colonel Arthur Brooke then took over the army fighting the Americans, and he um, managed to win the small battle at North Point and lead the troops on up towards uh, towards Baltimore. They took positions outside Baltimore, waiting for Fort McHenry to be suppressed, to be to be defeated, to surrender. Now, the Americans had a wonderful chap. American wonderful general called Sam Smith. He was the local senator. He was a very brave man. He was an experienced soldier, quite unlike William Winder in Washington and the, the terrible Armstrong, the war secretary, uh, and James Madison, who was no great army commander. Uh, but the man at Baltimore was in charge. General Sam Smith was a man of quite different calibre. And he had been a great veteran of the American War of Independence against the Brits some 30 years earlier. And he said, we're going to defend the city. What happened in Washington will not happen here. And he was right. It didn't happen there because Fort McHenry succeeded in surviving the incredible bombardment from the British fleet that went on all the night of the 12th and 13th of September, 1814, some three weeks after the attack on Washington. And the flag at Fort McHenry was the famous star-spangled banner that flew over the fort. It was specially designed to inspire the fort's commanders and soldiers uh, to um, stand against whatever was thrown against them. And uh, it flew over the fort. The Brits were waiting patiently for the fort to to fall so they could attack Baltimore properly, but it didn't. It survived the night. And the British decided to turn around and not risk their uh, what they had left in the way of soldiers, quite a lot of brave, brave men, but nevertheless they'd, they'd been reduced in number, and they didn't feel they could go on to Baltimore because this fort had survived. This incredible night when Fort McHenry was bombarded by the British fleet and when it managed to survive the horrible bombardment and thus be able to defend Baltimore against any British attack, which they decided not to go ahead with, as I've just said, This young lad, a young lawyer called Francis Scott Key, was watching from a ship nearby to see what would happen to the fort. And he thought, there's no way it can survive. I mean, this is simply, this is a terrifying bombardment by some 30 or 40 British ships firing mortar bombs, rockets, flares, all sorts of horrible things that were flying at the fort. And and this garrison was holding on. And as he as the dawn came up, he thought there's no way that flag will still be flying, and he he he, he peered through the through the fog of dawn uh, on the uh, 13th of September 1814, and he looked uh, across at the fort, and he thought he could yes he could see the flag was still flying, and so he took a piece of paper from his pocket and a pencil, and he was quite a little po a young poet. He was a, not only a lawyer, he was also an American poet, and he. He wrote down the words on his bit of paper. O say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? O say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wonderful poem. And he put it back in his pocket and he went off to the pub later on after Baltimore had survived the British attack and the the fort had, had, had won its spurs by surviving the terrible naval attack by the British ships. And some of his friends in the pub said, that's a nice little poem. And he said, yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? I'm, I'm rather proud of it. And they said, look, why don't we put it to, put it to words, put it to uh, music. And um, they uh, found the... They thought, well, I say we ought to get hold of some nice, nice, nice melody, and they chose a British drinking song, which they, which they'd been singing away in the pubs for a long time, and they put the words of this to the British drinking song, uh, and of course it was the American national anthem. It wasn't adopted, Dan, as the American national anthem until the 1930s. They had all sorts of other great songs they sang um, in the meantime, but it wasn't until the 1930s that the Americans adopted Francis Scott Key's poem, became a, a song, and then this, this sort of drinking song, as it was in the pubs earlier on, became the American national anthem. And so we Brits, many people don't know
3: this, we Brits inspired the American national anthem. Well, let's hope that, that this attack on the Capitol also inspires some creative flowering that will be remembered years, years hence. Dad, can I just finish up by asking you, how long have you been reporting on American politics? When did you first go to America to report on American politics? Oh, goodness me,
4: back in the 1960s, I think, uh, 1960s and 70s. uh, All sorts of things happening in America in those days.
3: In all the decades that you watched American politics, did you ever think you'd see the things that you've seen in the last few years, let alone the last week? Well, I was absolutely staggered
4: by what happened in the last week. I mean, the The only time, apart from the British raid on Washington in in August, September 1814, the only time that Washington's been attacked was by the terrorist organization Al-Qaeda in September uh, 2001. And then it was um, uh, attacked from the air, of course, uh, and um, it it survived. Of course, that uh, the White House itself wasn't attacked. uh, The British attack was in 1814. Of no other attack on the White House in all the uh, two or three hundred years of American existence uh, until the Al-Qaeda attack. Uh, and then, of course, it's, it's the Americans themselves who attack it in, uh, in 2020, 2020, 2021. Extraordinary.
3: In all of your experience of all these other you know administrations, how much of an outlier was the Trump administration, do you think?
4: I uh, have yeah, absolutely e- extraordinary um, aberration. This Trump administration has been I mean it, 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 and for, it, for all the mistakes that Trump has made and for all the incompetence and vanity and absurdity of his administration, which I mean many of us thought absurd from day one, others gradually began to agree it, it's been climaxed with something that simply decided I think virtually everybody that it's absurd and it, 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 has, it frankly it probably has to stop it, it, is, it is the most extraordinary. Uh, the word is aberration, I think, in American politics. And America, which is, it genuinely has, rightly claimed to be the, 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 the heart of Western democracy. I mean, we're pretty proud of our own democracy, but the Americans have done pretty well, uh, and they've had some wonderful presidents. And then this incredible four years, uh, and this absolutely beyond belief um, climax in the last week, when the. American president himself, the man who actually decided he was going to encourage his followers uh, who who believed like him that he had won the election to go and attack the Capitol. It was the most extraordinary thing. And um, I, I mean, he may not have dreamed that they would that they would go and ransack it like they did. But he must have realized that these these followers that he had talked to that morning were liable to go and do something terrible to the Capitol because it was largely undefended. And uh, in they went and they went and sat in the speaker's chair and they went and occupied offices and tore up newspaper and broke windows. It was the most, I, I find myself completely stunned by what I saw.
3: Well, thank you very much, Dad, for coming on and talking about your brilliant book and also a little bit about your experience um, visiting visiting Washington uh, o- over the years. Keep well, Dad. I'll see you soon now that you've both had your uh, vaccinations. OK, old chap.